All right, guys. So I'm sitting here with Captain Kevin Sullivan. Kevin, thanks so much for coming on the show, buddy. My pleasure. My pleasure. Awesome, I feel man. like I feel like I spend more time on the microphone than I do anything else at this point. You got the voice life. for it. You got the voice. Do I really? Yeah. That's that's that's. Uh, <laughs> I would say it's years of whiskey. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's you got a good voice for uh, for podcasting, man. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, I started. I did. I started doing podcasting like. Um, Gosh, it, I, I can't remember the year. We'll, we'll call it 2014, maybe. Um, I just did this. I was bored, right? Uh, we had two babies at home, and I was like, we weren't going out. We weren't doing anything. Um, when I was a young man, I, was, I did stand-up comedy in Boston. And I was like, I want to do something like that again. But there's nothing. I mean, I'm out in rural North Carolina. There's nothing like that out here. So I, I started just kind of like brainstorming. I'm like, why don't I do a podcast? So I started up a podcast called Wait What If? Um, and it was, it was kind of like Joe Rogan-esque and that's kind of who my, my mentor was. I watched him all the time. So I was like, I'm going to try to do something like that. And, uh, man, I must've done that for what year is it now? 2021. So I did that till 2019, uh, had a lot of fun with it. And, and then I switched to the 21 gun podcast. That's cool, man. I, uh, Joe Rogan's the OG, man. I didn't know you were trying to, trying to be a comic. Yeah. Yeah. I did that for, well, I was, <laughs> I was scared to speak in front of people. And so I'm the type of person that's like, well, I'm not going to sit here and shake in my boots every time I have to go and talk in front of someone. So let's just, let's just work it out. So I, uh, yeah, I started writing jokes and got up on stage and what we say, uh, uh, what's, what's your, what's your policy on swearing and stuff on this? Dude, trying to keep it clean. Let okay. It let it uh, <laughs> we say eat a dick in the comedy world and the more dick you eat, the better you become because it just, um, it just teaches you, right? You, you fail and failure uh, gives you lessons on how to make yourself better. So yeah, I did that for a couple of years and then I joined the Air Force. Awesome. And you say eat a dick as in like, just like fail and fall on your face. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's uh, maybe it's not anymore, but that, so that was gosh, what 99, 2000, maybe 2000, 2001, somewhere in that, those, that, that area. But uh, yeah, that was the lingo at the time. So if, and, and it's funny in, in like the comic world, you actually, <laughs> you want your friends to do well, but you also want them to need a dick, right? So they get up on stage and when it's just so funny when you're bomb, when you're bombing left and right. Um, yeah. So I don't know. That was the lingo at the time. Like, how'd you do last night? Oh, I ate a dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That seems like, you know, stand up comedy seems like the ultimate, like, you know, getting outside of your comfort zone. Type oh, of it's horrible. It's yeah. hard. I mean, it's, it's both horrible, but when you kill, it's like, ah, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. Like if you can make a room laugh and then keep it going for, you know, at the time you start off at like, I think it's like five minutes and then you can get 15 minutes. And if you can keep a room laughing for 15 minutes, you're like, you leave and you're like, man, I'm awesome. And then you go the next day and no, you use the same jokes, different clubs somewhere else. And everyone just looks at you and it's crickets and it's like, God, <laughs> that's gotta be tough. Yeah. Yeah, you just roll with it. And deciding which ones to use moving forward. I mean, one delivers, you know, one night, next yeah. night bombs, you get a dick. <laughs> it's a it's a science, right? So uh, guys, and now they just probably use their iPhones, but guys would have um, uh, recorders and you record your joke, you listen to your timing. I mean, comedy is, and that's the weird thing about it. You hear a lot of people that are like, uh, yeah, I, I, can be a, I can be a comic or I can be a podcaster. I can be... Yeah, you, you can, I guess you can try it, but you have to know timing, you have to know uh, just what works delivery method, you have to be able to read the audience, right? If it's a bunch of 
50 year old women out uh, at a 50th birthday party, you know, your your uh, certain jokes won't work with them. But if you have a bunch of drunk college frat guys, then you're like, oh, okay, I know what I can work with these guys. And it could be the same jokes, just how you tell it and how you deliver it. Um, but yeah, that, that just gave me comfort. And then when I went into the Air Force, as an officer, I mean, 90, well, not 90% of that, but a ton of that is briefing, right? Standing up in front of a colonel and you're a, a second lieutenant and you're trying to brief like a, a low-level mission um, and they tear you apart, right? Because it's just part of it. Oh, why are you going this way? And because of my stand-up comedy background and being able to, to kind of withstand that barrage, uh, briefing colonels and briefing rooms full of, full of flight officers was it was a breeze, you know? Yeah. Because you'd already gotten outside of your comfort zone with that. Yeah. 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 So it was like, there's no intimidation. What are you intimidated about? I mean, I guess you're intimidated because you're a lieutenant and they're, you know, Oh fives, Oh fours, but whatever. Yeah. So you were coming prior to you actually joining the, the military. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, back in and I joined in Oh one, I guess if I have to think about it. Yeah, it was Oh one, right. Well, it was right before September 11th. So I was one of those people that I joined for selfish reasons. It's it's that's actually a common theme that comes up on our show. Is I ask people why they joined. You know, why did they they um, sign their lives on the line? Because I think that's an interesting um, answer to hear from people. And there's definitely a clear line between pre 9/11 and post 9/11. Now there's some post 9/11. I mean, it, it's it's like anything else. You get people on outliers on both sides. But the pre 9/11s, we were very. I. I I got to be careful how I say it, but I mean, it is, it, it was kind of a selfish thing. A lot of us wanted college money. A lot of us were bored. I was bored and I was like, Hey, I'll go fly around the world or do something like that. Um, but then your post 9-11 people, these are, you know, folks that watched the country get attacked and uh, they were full. It was like the, the Pearl Harbor, you know, the people that went and, and listed the day after Pearl Harbor, same sort of thing. So yeah, there's a difference between those two, two groups of people yeah. in the end. I think we're all the same, but the whole reason for joining, yeah, I bet that would kind of be interesting to look at all the different reasons why people would join. Yeah, no. yeah, and it speaks a lot to you know. Uh, I'm sure there's been psychological articles written about this, but for for whatever the motivation is for you to join, uh, what type of troop you became, right? So if you were doing it because I don't know, uh, uh, you had daddy issues, <laughs> and then you go into a military that's very paternalistic, you're not going to meld very well. I mean, it's going to be bad for you. Um, if you join because you want to go kill Taliban, Hey, you might be, uh, well, first of all, it takes a certain type of person that to raise their hand and be like, yeah, send me to Afghanistan. I want to go to Afghanistan. I want to go, uh, to one of the shitty, I want to go to the stone age, except these people have PKMs and AK 47s. And I want to defend my country. I mean, that's, that takes a, a certain type of person. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely. And then I think the same thing too, like we see these large numbers of PTSD and stuff. I, I think a lot of that has to do with, this is just my opinion. Um, again, your motivations for joining. Um, there's some other unknown or these intangible things with PTSD, but uh, yeah, I, I, th I think, and that's just, again, my opinion that, that, that plays a role. And what, uh, what you do actually in the military, that plays a role. Uh, I mean, I guess oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, your, your finance guy that sits in an office for 10. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I I don't want to disparage anyone's service. You raise your hand, you go on the the military. You're 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 the 045 percent of the population at this point, so that's fantastic. Um, but with that said, I mean, it, yeah, you have your rear echelon folks and you have your your operator types, 
And if you're in operations, it's, you're going to have a different experience. Now, could the finance guy get stationed at Balad? Uh, Balad was an air base in Iraq um, and get mortared and develop PTSD from that. I'm pretty sure they could. I mean, honestly, they, they might take shit from the other uh, jobs. Absolutely. At the other career fields. But I don't think, I mean, dude, it's not normal to have a rocket come down on you, even if it's a hundred yards away, that's not a normal thing. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I kind of just danced around that to say that, um, uh, yes, it does, but I think it's all in, in what your experiences are and how you internalize it and, and your motivations. Right. So like if you were motivated to, if you're motivated to join the, the military, cause you wanted to get out of your hometown and you're, um, on a mountainside in Afghanistan and someone's firing a PKM at you, you might not, you might internalize that a heck of a lot different than the guy who saw the towers come down and decided that, you know, America is worth more than his life. So, so I would think, I mean, that's again, just my personal opinion that the way you internalize it, your motivations for joining are all going to have some sort of effect on that. No. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, there's a wide spectrum of, of human beings, you know, people yeah. handle things differently. So let's just, take it from the be- let's just take it from the beginning, man. I mean, um, you got out of high school or were you doing, were you a comic in high school? Were you trying to do that while you were in there? No, I was, uh, I'm an old guy. So I was in high school from, uh, God, that's a good question. When did I start? I, I, gra- I graduated in 95, um, high school. So then I did four years of undergrad. Uh, so I, um, I was the kid that didn't know what I should do. Right. I didn't have much guidance as far as that went. So I was like, I'll just check off the box and go to college. And I went there and just wasted my time for four years, completely wasted my time. Uh, you know, ran up some, some college debt, not the way the kids have it nowadays, but I I had some decent debt (laughs) and I got out and I was like, well, what do I do now? And so I, I got a job being a broker. Some guys like, it for John Hancock, he's like, Hey, we'll, we'll pay you whatever it was at the time, 600 bucks a week. And you will make you a broker. I'm like, all right, that sounds like a cool job. Um, it was horrible. Uh, you're sitting at a desk, you're in downtown Boston. It's like, it just, it just sucked. I'm like, I, this can't be what life's all about. And during that time, uh, I started doing stand-up comic just to kind of break up the monotony. Yeah. Uh, and to, like I said, and, and to kind of conquer that fear of, of talking in front of people. Um, but yeah, I mean, but then again, I look at it too. And I'm like, yeah, I wasted my time in college, which I did. Uh, there's no, I mean, I had a two, six, three, I think it was my cumulative GPA. Partying. What's that? Just partying. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was mainly it. And, and like I said, you know, zero guidance uh, about, you know, what I should be doing. I mean, it was, I got a liberal arts degree. That's total bullshit. Now, if I, I, I look at it now um, and I'm heavy on, cause I, you know, I work with a lot of younger folks, uh, with irreverent orders and stuff and I'm heavy on do what you want, but it's cost analysis, right? So, uh, okay. You want to be, uh, you want to go get your history degree. Great. How much is that going to cost you? You know, $43,000. Okay. It's 43,000. What are you going to do after that? What are you gonna do with that? Write a book. Okay. You're going to be the one in a million person person that writes a book that's successful to make enough money for you. Okay. You know, you're not going to do that. You're going to be a teacher. Okay. Well now you got to go to masters. You got to get your master's degree. Um, so that could be another $12,000. So now you're 50, 40, 50, what did I, where am I at? 55,000 in the hole. And you're going to get a job that pays 35,000 out, out, out of the blocks. Not up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just basic cost analysis. Now. Um, I think it has its purpose. Um, 
but I think for the most part, it's completely useless. College. Yeah. 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 I was going to school at a liberal arts at a liberal arts school and uh, I didn't learn shit. So, I mean, I think it's all situational. I mean, if you want to be a doctor, you have to go to school. You have to get good. You want to be a lawyer. Got to get good grades. Got to go to school. But you know, most things like I see people getting art degrees and stuff. It's like, (laughs) it's just, yeah. Yeah, What are you going to do with that? I mean, if you go, if you, and I get, again, make your plan, right. If you're going to go and your plan is to get your MBA uh, and you also are, are, uh, you know, electrician and you want to be an electrician's apprentice and everything there it is right electricians make a ton of money it's a sought after skill and if you have your mba you can run a business right so all that stuff makes sense um but yeah an art degree after four years and you're like and then you think you know something (laughs) don't you walk around i got a master's degree i got a bachelor's or whatever it is in art so it's it's crazy you say you have one in in art no 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 i don't have have a degree right now so i mean it's like people walk around with that kind of stuff. Like it, it really means something. I mean, employers don't really give a shit about what you have when it comes to that kind of stuff. No, you can perform. No. In fact, if I, now that I'm an old man, I like to say, if someone comes to me, I, I want to know, I could, even when I, and I can tell you, when I look at resumes, um, I don't care about, I mean, I guess I do care about your training, right? If you wanted to be a, um, uh, uh, electrician, I would want to see that you had an apprenticeship or something like that. All right. So yeah. Okay. That makes sense. But if I'm looking through, okay, you got your, your bachelor's of arts from Loyola in, you know, 2004. So tell me what you've done with that. Yeah. Tell me what that's great. Uh, I don't know. Congratulations. But what have you done with that? Um, and you know, honestly, I, and I think it's a very elitist thing for people to do that because if you also, uh, said, well, I mean, look in, in your case. Okay. So you dropped out of college and you started a business. Okay. Now we're talking, you know, what did you learn by starting business, a, a business? What did you learn by your successes and failures and, and where can you take that? And, and I think that's just, um, it's worth wait. Me and my wife, we, <laughs> we argue about this all the time. She's big into college. And I'm like, eh, I don't know, I guess it's more uh, utilitarian versus um, the classic way of, of thinking about education. Yeah, I mean, it's everybody's different. I mean, people want to do different things. Um, I just knew it wasn't really for me. I wasn't learning anything. I wasn't really paying attention in it. Only reason I was there is for basketball. I played basketball in college. Um, but I mean, for some people, it's just a waste. And for some people, I mean, it's kind of necessary. I think yeah. that, the ability to learn and be able to teach yourself things and be able to learn from other people. That's why I like doing this podcast. Um, the, the ability to be able to cultivate skills and knowledge and, you know, things you can use for your life outside of a structured environment. That's what really, really matters in my opinion. And from what a lot of people I've spoken to, spoken to a lot of very, very successful people. Um, and that's kind of the common theme that comes up. I mean, people like you, you seem like a smart guy. I mean, you just have to teach yourself things. You need to be able to learn and be able to adapt as you go and not just kind of, you know, bank on, I got a degree back in 2004, like you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And, and getting out of your comfort zone and taking risks. I mean, people 100%. are so risk adverse. Don't worry about it, especially if you're young, you know, if, if okay, if this is going to cost me what, uh, a lot of people are afraid to fall on their face, right? Yeah, they're, they're completely afraid of that. And I don't know if it's because everyone gets a trophy now. I have no idea what that is. Mm-hmm. And that's where you learn the most. I mean, this is, I, I would assume I, I, I've lost count. So I've probably done 350 episodes uh, uh, of podcasting, maybe more. Oh. And if I go back, I won't even go back and listen to my first episodes because it's like, it yeah. just sucks. And then I can't think of how many times you get that flop sweat, we call it, where you're, you're sweating because everything just fell apart and but every time something like that happens, you 
you grow from it. And if you give up, and I think a lot of people give up, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't like the way that made me feel. Uh, I'm not going down that path anymore. And that's why you have such a small percentage of people who are successful. Do you know what the, the percentage of small businesses uh, that are successful are? I don't know. I, I know it's like one in five or maybe even less. Yeah, it's, it's tiny. It's not, I think it's even less than that. Um, to be honest, I'm not really sure what the exact number is, but it's not many people. It's, this shit is hard. Right. Yeah. It yeah. drops off significantly after I think the first three years, yeah. five years and 10 years, just drops completely. Yeah. And very, it's, it's tough. Mm-hmm. Very tough. That's something yeah. I, I really admire about you, man. I mean, that's one of the biggest lessons I've really learned in my life. Um, and I'm a young dude, um, but the willingness to fail and mm-hmm. you know, not being afraid to look silly. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's podcasting or, you know, martial arts or basketball or, or anything, you're going to suck for a long time. And you have to be willing to put up with that, that period where you're not doing well and you're not, you look silly in front of your friends. I mean, people are making fun of you, whatever it is. That's how everybody starts. You know what I mean? Right, so it's right. like, the willingness to be able to just go through that. That's when you mentioned the comedy thing that kind of just, you know, raised my eyebrows a little bit. That's, that's a wise thing for you to say is just to get outside of your comfort zone, just to get over that quick, because, you know, you and I both know, you just got to get over that little period. Like you said, you just got to get outside of your comfort zone. And, you know, after that, I mean, that's, that's what holds most people back is the fear of looking silly in front of their friends when they've never done what they want to do. Sure. And, and, and your friends who go to see you on that open mic night, deep down inside, they're like, God damn, I wish I could, I wish I had the balls to get up on stage and do something yeah. like that. Because what's going to happen, right? I mean, suppose you, you eat a dick, as we say, and in, <laughs> um, you know, in 30 years, is some guy going to be like, I remember 30 years ago, I was at a comedy club in downtown Boston and there was this, no one's going to freaking remember. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, I don't know. You don't take it, you don't take it that seriously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just putting things in perspective, that's, that's important, man. Yeah. Um, I think that's what a lot of people lack today. So you're doing comedy. Mm-hmm. What makes you decide to go into the military and what did you want to do in the military? Let's take it from there. Uh, I wanted to, so I was kind of a hard charger. I went, um, I just didn't, I, you know, I, I grew up listening to stories. My grandfather who, who was in the Navy in World War II and my great grandfather who was uh, in the Coast Guard in the 1917 on the Great Lakes and my dad who was in the Navy and my uncles who were in the Marine Corps on Iwo Jima. And it's like, it's like, man, these people, and, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, military related. I just didn't know anyone that climbed Mount Everest at the time, but I was like, man, these people, they lived interesting lives and I'm sitting here in a cubicle um, you know, trading other people's money at their request. I mean, it was like, I'm just a bitch. What am I doing? Right. And and at night, what would we do? We'd go and we'd hit a bar, get wasted, go home, wake up, come back and do the same thing. And it was day in and day out. And I'm like, this can't be, this can't be what it's all about. So, um, I started looking into different programs. Wasn't sure if I want to do Navy or, or I never wanted to do air force. Um, but so, you know, I started working out, started focusing on my nutrition and getting everything together. Uh, and then I went to the recruiter and I was like, Hey, I want to blow stuff up. And then I had this whole, fa- this whole family tradition in Navy. So I go straight to the Navy guy, the way that recruiting offices work in some areas, this is in Boston, where there was like, if I remember, it was not a very big room and there's four desks and each desk has a different branch. And uh, I go to the Navy guy and I was like, he was like, well, what, what have you considered doing? What do you want to do? And I was like, I want to blow stuff up. And he's like, yeah. He's like, that's a very small percentage, you know, more likely you'll be some sort of, 
you know, I, I don't know, administrative officer or something like that. And then I, I thought it's the same thing I'm doing now, except it'll be on a boat. I'm like, that's bullshit. <laughs> so the, the air force guy was next to me and he's like, Hey, if you want to blow stuff up, you should come over here. I got a pipeline for you. And I'm looking for uh, tack peas or I'm looking for people to do this. And he tells me it's tack P and I'm like, what's that? He goes, it's tactical air control party. Um, you basically, uh, you go out with like SEALs or you go out with the 10th Mountain Division in Afghanistan and they say there's a uh, emplacement up on that hill we want to take that, uh, taken out. So you call and you bring in the assets and you may even laze the target. And I was like, this is awesome. I'm in. Right? It's okay. like the ground pounder version of the Air Force. I'm like, yeah, I love this. Um, so I started down that road and I ended up going to, they, they sent me to officer candidate school. Uh, I have mixed feelings about that. I feel like, you know, what do you do? I mean, you, you make your choices, you make your choices, but I think going enlisted as a TACP would have been uh, a little bit cooler. So I, I went to officer candidate school and you have to, as flyers, you have to take this thing. Um, I don't remember what they call it or as flyers as um, officers, you have to take a thing called a, something like the battery, the, the aviation battery exam or something. And it's this like video game and they're check, checking your reflexes and your visual uh, acuity and all that stuff. And it was, everyone had to take it. So I took it and just moved on. And um, someone came into the barracks and they're like, Sullivan. I'm like, great. So I go over and I'm like, yes, sir. And he's like, um, you scored well in the bat. We need a, um, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, navigator. We need a, we have a navigator slot come down. You want to do that? I was like, I don't even know what that is. I didn't know you guys had navigators anymore. And he's like, uh, I don't know. You'll probably go, you could be in the backseat of an F-15. You could be in a, a gunship. Remember, they're always trying to sell you. Yeah. <laughs> you could be in a C-130 gunship. And I was thinking, that might be kind of cool to come rolling in on something in an F-15 and blow it up. I'm like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> I'm in the Air Force. Might as well go in the air. Yeah. So, uh, so from that point on, I went, uh, I went into flying. It was not my, in my plan. Usually when people fly for the Air Force, it's like, since they were a kid, they were, um, you know, getting their civil air patrol license on. I didn't have any of that. I just, on a whim, I was like, okay, I'll fly airplanes. <laughs> so you mentioned that it, you thought it would be cooler to go to, um, go in as enlisted versus going to OCS. I got a buddy that's about to go, one of my best friends about to go to OCS. That's why I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Well, it all depends on what you're, so yeah, yeah. If it depends on what your motivations are, right. If you're going to get paid more as an officer, you're going to get treated better as an officer. You're going to, um, you're going to get shit from the, like you'll never be in the, the enlisted, uh, fraternity. You're just not going to be, you're, you're like a different, it's like a different world. Um, but you'll get, you know, you'll get whatever you get out of that. If you want to go in to be, um, you know, a uh, uh, supervisor, you're definitely gonna get your supervisor and leadership roles. If you go in as infantry officer, I mean, that's looking, I, I don't think I would ever want to be an infantry officer, right? So you're commanding, you know, entire units and, and whatever you say and they do leads to, you know, one of them getting killed, you're carrying that with you for the rest of your life. So I, I never saw the glory of being a, a um, uh, officer in that form. Uh, Side note, the, the organization who, who created Irreverent Warriors, and that's who my podcast is under, uh, his name is Donnie O'Malley. He made a thing called Vet TV, Veteran, um, I think the website, I can't believe I can't think of it. It's Veteran, Veteran Television? No, Veteran, oh shit, I can't believe I forgot the name of the, uh, the website. If you look up Vet TV, you're going to find it. Um, he was an infantry officer. He was a Marine Corps infantry officer. And, um, you know, it's just... I, I don't know. I, I guess you have to really have the stomach uh, to be able to do something like that. 
But if you want to, let's say you're, you want to be a Navy SEAL, right? Let's say you want to be a, a PJ who are, I think are the coolest dudes on earth. So PJ is a pararescue, para jumpers or whatever they call them, but pararescue in the air force. Um, I personally think being an enlisted is it's just, you're, you're the, you're the tip of the spear. You're the, the part of the machine that does all the moving rather than, you know, look over all the machinery and say, you do this and you do that. You're actually doing it. And right. I think that's just a lot cooler in my opinion. It's same thing with like green berets and uh, Navy seals and all the other little special operations group tech PEs. I just think it's, it's a, it'd be more fun to be enlisted in that situation. Hmm. Do a lot of officers not go on the actual the missions with these people that are enlisted? I don't, I can't really speak to that. Cause I don't, I don't know. I th- think they do. Um, well actually, yeah. So lone survivor, um, if you remember that story, uh, with Marcus Luttrell, um, uh, what's his name there? Uh, Murphy, um, uh, Lieutenant Murphy, he's the guy who got the medal of honor. He went up on a hillside and, and uh, was radioing for help and, and got killed. I mean, he was an officer, so no, they do that. Um, I guess it's just, uh, having that, uh, what's that word I'm looking for? Um, just having that, that authority to, or not even authority. What's the word I'm looking for? You know, like, uh, you're, you're, it's just a lot of weight on your shoulder. I would rather just operate on my own, which was kind of nice. Like when I, when I was an officer candidate school, I was basically going down that route. You know, the tactical air control parties are, are a special forces unit. And I would have been an officer officer in there, but instead I went into aviation and an aviation officer isn't really chart in charge of anybody as an aviation officer. You are in charge of knowing your weapon system and knowing it better than anybody in the world. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it, it was just complete. I didn't have anyone under my authority. I was, I was strictly uh, an aviator and I was a navigator and I, everything I did was based on flying aircraft. So I like that. That that was actually, you know, in hindsight, um, I'm I'm that's one reason why I'm glad I actually ended up going that route because yeah, I don't like being in charge of anyone. <laughs> yeah, it seems a lot less stressful. Yeah. Just do your thing, not to yep. work with everybody else. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And especially as a navigator, we have a thing called the uh, aircraft commander, right? So uh, the aircraft commanders in the at the time, I don't think they do it this way anymore, but the person in the left seat uh, the pilot in the left seat is the aircraft commander and navigator is never the aircraft commander. So it's like, <laughs> you can be mission commander, which is if you have like 30 C-130s, uh, that can happen. And it's happened on, on a few occasions, but yeah, for the most part, you're like a, a highly paid uh, warrant officer. So warrant officers are usually uh, technically, I mean, they outrank enlisted folks and technically they're officers, but they don't have really, I mean, they, they focus on, on flying or whatever their, their job is, which is nice. So is that where you learn to fly? I mean, I'm assuming that's yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I went, I went in. Uh, gosh, my first duty station was down in San Antonio, Texas, and a week later, I'm in a Cessna learning how to fly. And I, I, like I said, you know, some people grew up. This is what they wanted to do, and they know everything about every aircraft, and they know about. I didn't know anything, and uh, here I am. You know, they, you go into to flight school, and it's so intimidating because it's just flight publication, flight publication. I mean, they're just dropping books in front of you. And they're like, here's your schedule. It's like going to college. Here's your schedule. Here's all your books. Um, tomorrow morning at 8am report here. And I'm like, what are we doing? Oh, you're flying. I'm like, what? <laughs> so you got to the aircraft and they're teaching you all the, the flights. It's called a um, navig, 
navigator initial flight training. Again, I don't know if it exists anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, they sit you down and, and you know, then they take you up and then they immediately give you the, they want you to have that, that confidence in yourself. So they immediately give you the, the stick and they're telling you what to do. And it was awesome. I, I had a really good time. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. You gotta be smart to be a pilot. How'd you, uh, how'd you like being out in San Antonio? That's where I'm from. Oh, I love it. I love it. We're actually, um, uh, working in currently trying to get myself. Um, so I'm a, a PA now. I know dude, it's a long, <laughs> I've had a, a really strange career, but I'm a physician assistant and I'm getting my license down in, in San Antonio or not in San Antonio, in Texas. And we're going to be looking at areas down there. I just loved it, man. I was down there for two years and that was what? Oh, one to Oh three. And I miss it. I mean, this is 17, 18 years later and I still miss Texas. Yeah, I Texas. just love it so much. Texas is a cool place, man. Texas. Where are you now? Uh, we're outside of St. Louis. I'm actually okay. going to Austin pretty soon. So, okay. Yeah. yeah, I lived in San Antonio for most of my life, lived in Houston for about four years, and then I uh, moved to St. Louis not too long ago. So probably so going to come down to Austin at some point. You're going to go to Austin selling Second Amendment things? Oh, good luck, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's kind of the thing, man. I, I like Austin. You've been to Austin before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we spent a lot of time there. It was like, I want to say it's what, an hour, hour and a half from San Antonio? Yeah, it's not far. It's yeah. Not, so we used to go to, what was it, 5th Street or 6th Street or something like that? Where? Uh, in Austin. So there was this like street that they would close down and all the bars would open. And then it was awesome. Uh, I just remember as a young guy, I was like, this, is, this place is great. Then we'd go to UT games and yeah, it was a lot of fun. Austin's a cool spot. I haven't been down there for the bars before. I was, I was too young to go do that. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, man, I mean, Austin's a cool spot. San Antonio's nice. I like anywhere in Texas is cool, man. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the cool thing. We're looking at the, an area called the Woodlands, which is north of Houston. Awesome, man. Uh, DFW. Uh, we have friends up, we have friends all over Texas. So yeah, I think it's just time. It's time for a change. It happens. I mean, it's kind of, some people can settle in and be in one spot forever and you know, I did New Hampshire. I was in Boston. Um, we lived in North Carolina for a while. I went to New York for a while. Big mistake. Big mistake. Really? Yeah. We were there for about 10 months and we came back. Uh, yeah. It was just, I mean, the first snowfall where we were, we were out in the Finger Lakes, the first snowfall was, uh, or the last snowfall, because we got there in the winter was May, some point in May. Um, and then it finally got warm towards the end of June. And it was like July, August. And then by the end of September, it started snowing again. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This is not our spot at all. So, so we got out of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like snow, but give me a little bit on vacation and then I'm good. And I can come back to. So yeah, we've been in North Carolina. North Carolina is pretty good. Um, the 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 difference, I would say the big issue with North Carolina is it's its culture is very um you know, they know I'm a Yankee. Absolutely. And, and it's like, they call me, well, they don't call me out, but I can tell they, you know, I hear them change their, the speed and the, it, I can just tell I'm treated differently down here. And I've been down here for, gosh, I, I forget the cumulative amount of time, but it's, let's say 18 years. I've been down here for a long time. Um, and yeah, it's, you can just tell. And then if you go to other places, like there's areas in, and I'm sure they're the same all over the country, but North Carolina, if you go up towards Raleigh, it's like a pocket of northerners. So, you, so you could live there, and I guess not get the cold shoulder. But then you're you're basically living in New England in North Carolina, or you know, th there's yeah. no southerners there. So it's like, 
at least Texas. I mean, gosh, everyone I know who's in Texas and living there, they just took you right under their wings. They're like, welcome. <laughs> this yeah. is Texas. So, so how far, my uh, ex-girlfriend's actually from Raleigh. How far away are you? Where, where are you in, in North Carolina? Uh, we're in Raleigh. We're, well, we're 20 minutes south. Okay. Uh, a little, little town called Clayton. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a perfect little place, but I think it's time to check out something else. Cool, man. I actually used to live about 20 minutes away from the woodlands as well, a place called Cyprus. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, when we were looking in the area, we saw that. What? How'd you like it? It was nice, man. Um, I like, woodlands is a nice area, too. Yeah. Anywhere over there is pretty nice. I mean, there's some good spots. Yeah. We, we're, we're not into the city. Uh, we want to stay away from Houston. And um, most of the folks I know who are down, I don't know if you hear my dog. He's going crazy right now, but he'll stop in a minute. Uh, yeah, we'll probably just stay rural. I mean, that's, that's who we are, especially with kids. You don't want kids being raised in a city. At least I don't. Yeah, no, I, I feel that. Um, okay, so you learn how to fly. You're, did you start out doing C-130s? Yeah. Uh, well, you do this undergrad. Um, too bad I don't have my other camera. I can. I got pictures of stuff all over the the room here. So if you can see, that's a, a basically a 737. It's kind of hard to see right in the center of that picture. Mm -hmm. So we start in a 737, um, and from there, you go uh, to what's called a T1A Jayhawk, which I don't think I have any pictures of them. And then from there, they, they, you, you can go what's called WISO, um, Weapon System Officer, or maybe they're called CISOs now, Combat System Officer, or you can be a navigator, which they don't exist anymore. Um, and I, you know, they give you the opportunity to, to train and all that. And I went and I think for like a month, we trained in the Combat Weapons Officer. Sounds cool, but it was boring. I mean, it was like you listen to radars and try to identify what type of radar that is by the signature. So like a radar... If you're if you're listening to it, it'll have like a like a like a weird sound like that, and then you have to look at that and be like, oh, that's a ZSU four uh, trying to pan. And it's like, no, that's not for me. I'm not into that. <laughs> so I ended up going the the navigator route, and all my so I, I had like four really close buddies in my flight class, and we all got C one thirties. The top three got special operations, which is what I want. That was me. I'm like, I want to be in special operations. Uh, I got what's called slick C-130, so low-level airdrop, but I wasn't special operations. I was, um, I don't know, regular operations. I actually have a, I have a T-shirt that I wear. It says regular forces, <laughs> and it's got the Ranger tab on it. It's great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I was bummed because I really want to do that. But we had some cool, we had some cool uh, uh, missions because I was stationed here in North Carolina at Pope and Pope is, is, uh, the airfield for Fort Bragg and Fort Bragg has your Delta force. It has your, um, uh, 82nd airborne. It has, um, your green berets. It has your combat control technicians. So we got to do a lot of cool work with those guys doing low level airdrops. It was fun. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, when we got to, so when I got on station, you know, the first month, maybe it was two months was like learning the local routes, learning all that stuff. And then it was like, awesome. Glad you learned everything. And they send you out the door and, you know, two days later you're in Iraq <laughs> or Afghanistan or whatever, wherever you are. So, you know, my, my plans on traveling the world and everything happened, but just during, this is, oh gosh, by the time I was operational, we'll say it was oh four to oh seven. It was just deploy, deploy, deploy. You'd come home for rest and rest just meant getting all your, as a flyer, you have to have so many like 
takeoffs and landings and you have to do all these, uh, I forget what they called them, but you have to have so many things every quarter or whatever it was. So you'd come home and you'd try to knock those out and then get all your training requirements done. And then you go back out and then you're over there again. And the first two or three times it was great, but then it just got, you know, monotonous. You're like, God, we're going over there again. <laughs> I mean, 04 and 07, that was kind of when it was really bad, wasn't it? Around. Yeah, we were, we were in Iraq. Uh, 90% of my flying was in Iraq. And yeah, I mean, we, we were part of the supply chain for Fallujah. So there's an airfield called, um, man, my brain's not working tonight. Uh, Alta Katum, I believe is the name of the airfield, Alta Katum, which sits on a river on the other side of the river is Fallujah. And that's where the Marines, we brought the Marines in there. And then they had a Ford, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to use infantry lingo because i don't know but they'd have a ford gathering area and then they headed into fallujah and then if we had any like medevacs or anything like that we'd fly them out day in and day out and then the same thing in like 06 it was ramadi um yeah and that was the i think that was the bloodiest year uh so i mean you you, you kind of picture in your head oh, i'm gonna be this awesome cool warrior and and you go there and everything's fine and you're flying, you're doing everything great. And you're like, Hey, this is pretty cool. I'm doing my part. And then you see a surface terror missile get shot up at you. And you're like, Holy shit. People want to kill me. People want me dead. That was like a strange thing to kind of like, and then after that, you kind of internalized it. And, and then maybe it's cause you notice it now, but then you just, you, people be taking shots at you all the time. And yeah, it just kind of became the standard uh yeah just kind of became the standard you just go and get shot at try not to die and then come home because in the c-130 we don't have guns uh the the gunships do but we don't have anything to shoot back so if someone lights you up you just flick them off and hope you don't die <laughs> yeah, that'd be terrifying yeah it it could be and i guess it was but if you tried to if you thought about it too much uh, you know like our the worst incidences were like you know you're in nvgs and you're flying at night and you're flying into we'll say alta Katum again which is outside of Fallujah and you're, you're on NVGs, all your lights are off on your aircraft. So no one can see you. And suddenly you see a helicopter, you know, a half a mile off your wing uh, heading in your direction. And that's more of an oh shit moment because you guys can't see each other and you're lucky to see someone. And yeah, those, those are, uh, yeah, that, those are the things that keep me up still at night. I'll think about it and be like, Oh God. <laughs> yeah. That'd be, that'd be crazy, man. That's, yep. That had to be intense. Right. Did you do all your ops at night? Was that when you guys were doing all your stuff? We were 24-7. What, what would happen is you would just like, you know, 24-7 we were flying. You would rotate back like an hour or two each day. So you would find yourself uh, about, for about two weeks between twilight, middle of the night, early morning, and then two weeks late morning, afternoon, early evening, and then two weeks. So you just kind of rotate around that 24-hour schedule. Hmm. I liked flying night ops though. I loved it. It was, uh, I just, I, I feel, well, we were safer cause you know, the insurgents couldn't see us. They didn't have NVGs. And, um, I don't know, something about like being in a big, bad Herc full of killing Marines and it's everyone else below you is sleeping. <laughs> it's just a kind of a cool feeling. Yeah. It would be pretty cool. Awesome, man. So I want to be respectful of your time, uh, before we really move on too much. Um, mm -hmm. I want to talk about really quickly how important it is to do what you want to do. Um, you mentioned you're in a cubicle, just not really enjoying what you're doing and just kind of in a routine. Um, how important is it for you to, you know, do something you love and switch things up? I think, I, I think it's a fine line, right? So uh, Mike Rowe, look up Mike Rowe's uh, video about following your passion, right? I think, I mean, there's no truer words uh, spoken uh, than what he says in that video. So that the gist of it is 
let's say your passion, his passion was being a carpenter, right? He wanted to be a carpenter. His grandfather was a carpenter. And no matter what he did, he couldn't, he couldn't do it. He just sucked at carpentry, but he was good at, I think he was good at singing or something. There was something that he was good at. And so he did that. And he, he said, okay, yes, follow your passion, but it's terrible advice. Don't tell anyone to go follow your passion because it's, it may not be what gets you through this life, right? It's find something that you're good at, do that. It may suck. I mean, my grandfather was a custodian in um, Boston, Massachusetts for 50 years until he shattered his leg and spent, you know, his pension basically in a chair sick and dying, right? So, but he was good at it, right? So I'm sure he had a passion that was much deeper than that, but he was good at that and it helped raise his family. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of honor in that. So, so I guess like, here's a perfect example. My passion is entertainment, I guess, is what you would call it. I like doing podcasting or like um, journalism, things like that. Uh, but my job is a PA. Now, do I love being a PA? No, no, it's not. My job isn't interesting. I mean, I just go and I give people, um, I don't know, antibiotics for an ear infection. And then I come home at the end of the day, but my passion is this, right? So I guess, and I, I'm, I'm totally butchering his speech, but it's something about passion and, and what you're good at. And so, I don't know, find out what you're good at, figure out a way to make that earn you some money. And then when you have time, then you can work on your passion. Now, if your passion happens to line up and you can make money doing that, then yeah, that's great. But you're going to be chasing, you're going to be chasing failure a lot. If you're, if you're just following your passion. Well said. Um, I know you're big on, on mental health and helping people with PTSD. What uh, advice would you give to somebody who might be, you know, struggling with that and feeling like they're alone, Uh, especially nowadays in 2021, not to cut you off. Sorry. No, no, no. It's all right. But especially nowadays, I mean, it's not just, you know, veterans or, you know, active duty people. I mean, it's everybody. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are just struggling right now with depression and all that. I know you, you know, you suffered with that for a while. What would be your advice to someone who might be dealing with that right now? Well, here's the good news. Um, uh, check out uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, 15, 1589 with Andrew Marr. He's a good friend of mine. He's a, a um, Green Beret and uh, my doctor who is on that show, his name is Mark Gordon. Um, there's, there's answers to it, right? So it's a, it's a pandemic, uh, uh, worse than a stupid COVID thing. This is like legit what one in one in, um, two. So 50% of children have anxiety or depression. I mean, that's freaking insane to even think about that. And I want to say something like 80% of the public is on some sort of antidepressant or SSRI or something like that. And, and what's going on here? Like, why is that happening? There's, there's a number of theories out there, you know, uh, whether it's, it's dietary, which I think it's dietary. I think there's some genetics that play a role in it. Um, there's some trauma that plays a role in it. Um, there's, it's just, it's such a multifactorial process in your brain that there's really no true answer to how to fix it. Um, what does seem to improve it is what I used to, I used to be the guy that, that prescribed antidepressants. I used to follow that philosophy. And then I was like, why my people are getting sicker and they feel like shit and you're ruining their, their, they don't feel, they don't feel you're putting them on something that makes them not feel. So it dawned on me. I'm like, why is this a problem now? And it's because people aren't being their primal selves, right? We've spent 2 million years evolving as a species. And suddenly over the last 25 years, we find ourselves inside on computers under false lights, eating total horseshit food, 
um, and wondering why we're fat, why we feel like crap, why we have depression, anxiety, fibromyalgia. I mean, the list is a mile long, high blood pressure, diabetes, like what our body, high cholesterol, our bodies aren't trying to kill us, right? They, they, they just aren't. Um, they are dysfunctioning in our current paradigm of living, which is uh, going to the grocery store and buying garbage. So my answer is eat right, meaning if, if you can kill it, pick it or grow it or whatever, then go ahead and eat it. <laughs> I guess if you can milk it, you can eat it. Um, if it comes in a box or a bag or it's some crazy funky color that doesn't exist in nature, stay the hell away from it. And you'll find most of your problems will start to resolve. Um, talk to people. That's another thing, uh, especially as veterans. We don't want to talk to anybody. We're like, uh, that's a weakness. You know, being a, being a, a depressed and anxious, that's, a, those are, that's being a pussy. And it's like, no, because, I mean, I just said there's 80% of us have something like that going on. And it works. Talk therapy works. So, so go and talk about it. Find out the resources to, to actually go out and talk about it. Um, so yeah, really dietary intervention and, and getting your brain set straight with some talk therapy, I think would benefit almost everybody. And if we did that, we would probably cut out 70% of the medications that we have people on right now easily. Yeah. yeah I completely agree with all that and get off your phone so much. That's what helps me a lot. Yeah. Whenever yeah. You can go down some toxic rabbit holes if you're just sitting there on your phone. Yeah. Whenever I'm just mindlessly scrolling, I wake up and like, oh my gosh, what the fuck did I just do for the past? 45 minutes. Yeah. You know, it's not after. good for you. It's not good for you. Shut down. I was actually, I've been wrestling, wrestling with this idea of just shutting down my Facebook, um, shutting down my Twitter, shutting, well, I can't shut down Instagram because of the podcast, but, um, I don't engage on, on, in political or anything like that on my Instagram. So I, so I don't feel bad when I get into it, <laughs> but I go into Twitter and half my feed is just people calling the other half assholes. And it's like, Oh, this is gross. Uh, and you don't feel good. You don't feel good after that. You know, I had to delete Facebook and Twitter for that reason, man. I get it. Yeah. Um, awesome, man. So where can people find your podcast? What is it? Where can people find you on Instagram? It's called 21 Gun. And I did the the big mistake of half my stuff is the numbers, 21 Gun. And the other half is 21 Gun, spell it out. The <laughs> best way is to go to the website, 21 Gun, spelling it out, dot net. I didn't get the com, but 21 Gun dot net. And that's so... Oh, so just to plug for, we have Veterans TV, Vet TV, which is like a Netflix for veterans. Um, vets kind of have dark humor. The shit that we went through, um, the way that you kind of deal with that is to laugh and make jokes about it. Um, and when you become a civilian and you start trying to laugh at this horrendous stuff, uh, they look at you like you're a psychopath. But then when you're amongst your friends, they're, they're like, yeah, that was a good one. That was nice, right? Yeah. So Vet TV embraces that dark humor. Um, they have a nonprofit called Irreverent Warriors, which is um, it's for veterans, veterans only, unless you want to volunteer and help, then you, you can be a civilian. But for that, we have these things called Silky's Hikes where we pack 22 kilom or, uh, kilograms of gear. We hike for 22 miles in something called Silky Shorts or Ranger Panties. And these are the short shorts that you wear in training yeah. um, and combat boots. And so we get together and the idea is to pull people out of isolation, um, to, to get into that camaraderie, to use that vet TV humor and to kind of feel like we did back, back when we were in service. And it saves lives. I mean, we have countless stories of people that are like, I didn't think I had friends anymore. I didn't think I was part of a community anymore. Now I am. So that is my parent company and 21 guns. So if you're, if you're following it, it's, uh, vet TV, irreverent war 
Warriors 21 Gun is the podcast for Reverend Warriors. So that's kind of how it all works out and everything I link to on the, the, the website. Awesome. I'll put that website and everything else in the, the show notes of this podcast. Where can people Sweet. find you on Instagram? Uh, at 21. Now, here you go. At 21 Gun Podcast, the number <laughs> uh, 21 Gun Podcast. Okay. Awesome, Kevin. That's all I have for you, man. Thanks so much for coming on.